Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Ocean's Edge Realty, a sponsor of the second annual International Maritime Film Festival, a contest of films celebrating the heritage, spirit of adventure, and ingenuity of boats and waterborne pursuits, September 29th through October 1st at the Alamo Theater in Bucksport. Tickets and information at MaritimeFilmFestival.com. The time's 9.59, and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Democracy Forum with your host, Ann Luther, of the League of Women Voters Down East is up next. Good morning. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the eighth program in our series this year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is about Census 2020, making sense of the census. We'll talk about the history and evolution of the census, why it's important, who uses census data, what's being planned for 2020, what problems are on the horizon, and why the census matters to us here in Maine. We'll be taking your calls during the second half of the show, so stand by to join the conversation. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum. Let me introduce our guest today. Joining us on the phone from Wisconsin is Margot Anderson. Margot is the Distinguished Professor of History and Urban Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. She is the author of the book, The American Census, A Social History. She's widely regarded as an expert on the census, and we're very pleased to have you with us today, Margot. Hello. Hello. Um, Joining us here in the studio is Richard Taylor. Richard is Communications and Research Manager for the Maine State Housing Authority. Welcome, Richard. Well, thank you. Richard uh, knows about how the census works here in Maine and what we use that data for, so we're glad to have him along as well. According to Aaron Sorkin, who's a screenwriter for the TV show West Wing, they did an episode a few years ago about the census and sampling versus a direct statistic, and Sorkin said, I quote, um, you just said the word census and people fall asleep. Well, we're going to try to keep you awake for the next full hour talking about the upcoming decennial census. That's once every 10 years. Is the accuracy of the 2020 census at risk? Are there partisan implications and motivations at play? And why should we care? So, Margo, let's put it to you first. Talk to us about the history of the census. Um, You know, how has it evolved? How long has it been going on? Where has it been controversial? And bring us up to 2020. Okay. Um, The census is, uh, the decennial census that we take um, on the year zero every year, uh, every decade, is uh, mandated by the 1787 federal constitution. Uh, When um, the 13 colonies won the revolution, they had to figure out how to create a national government. And one of the issues that they faced was the fact that the, even then the new states were a very different size and economies and demographics and so forth. So they, the, in the Philadelphia Convention, they debated all this and decided that they would allocate political representation in the House of Representatives and the Electoral College according to their respective numbers, which was the phrase, which is the phrase in the Constitution. 
that required um, a count of the population every 10 years uh, because they also knew at the time that the population grew, uh, people moved around, and so that in order to keep the representational character of the government um, uh, congruent with the uh, demography, the changing demography of the government, um, you had to do this every 10 years. So we've done it ever since. Um, and uh, and the because the U.S. has a very diverse and a very dynamic uh, population, in other words, very rapid growth in world, by world standards and very diverse by world standards, every 10 years we uh, take a census and we find out um, how things have changed, and we shift seats in the House of Representatives, and then by implication, by comparison, also in state legislatures, in local governments, and school boards, and city wards, um, on the um, on the basis of those numbers. So, it, is it so unique? It has, is it unique to the U.S. to do it this way? No, we were the first country to do it this way. I mean, uh, you know, population counting and some form goes back to biblical times. I mean, you know, the uh, Mary and Joseph were uh, being censused um, mm-hmm. as uh, they went to Bethlehem. Um, so that the, this is an old practice, but it was the the Americans were the the ones who just who recognized that you could connect it to the political system. Um, so most other countries do this as well, but if their populations are either not as dynamic, so for example in um, you know Britain or uh, France, where the population is much more stable than it is in the in the U.S., it, you know you, it's part of the political world, but it's not nearly as um, uh, important to the sort of integrity of the government and to the you know, to um, what we're up to. Has funding for the census been controversial? over the course of our long history doing it? The funding? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, (laughs) partially because it's a big operation every 10 years. In other words, and we're in that debate about um, where the public and actually members of Congress and and the media are beginning to realize, like, oh, my gosh, this is expensive to do because um, uh, the because there's a goal to, to count everyone, and the slogan the Census Bureau uses is we count everyone once, only once, and in the right place. And the in, in the right place is important because we, of course, are going to draw our uh, congressional districts and, uh, and so forth on the basis of where people are, not only as well as how many of them there are. Um, we... Um, we spend a lot of money doing that because we have to, and until almost 1970, it was always done by hiring um, legions of um, Americans to go out and actually walk the whole country and, and do it. Now, starting in 1970, we began to shift to using the Postal Service. Um, the That was the mechanism up until really the last decade. Everybody got a, every address in the country would get a, form in the mail, and now we're trying to shift it to a primarily, although not, not exclusively, um, a digital or internet um, a, um, proposal. And each time we change the technology of doing this, um, we have to maintain the quality and the, the sort of continuity with the past census. So, you know, it has to not only, we only get one, you know, one run at it every 10 years. 
So uh, it's a very big deal, and, the, and, it, and it is expensive. Um, I mean, over the course of the, if you amortize it over the course of the decade, it's not so much, but it's, it, it, is, um, uh, it is a big expenditure. And we're about, you know, and it, we're, about, it, we're in that debate about, gee, how much should we be paying for this right now? And we want to spend a lot of time today talking about mm-hmm. that. But um, tell, tell us a little bit more about, um, and Richard, I want to give you a chance to weigh in here, on, too, on this. But, um, you, you know, there's a lot of talk about, as came up in the Aaron Sorkin quote, about mm-hmm. uh, direct... Uh, a direct statistic, you know, maybe not walking the streets and knocking on every door, but, you know, contacting every single person in one way or another, and uh, statistical sampling. What's at the heart of that debate? Okay. we. By the way, we don't count every person. We count every household and address, right? Um, and um, so, in other words, what we, and we've always done that. In other words, if you if you go back to 1790 and look at the statutes, because of course Congress then had to write the the rules about how to go about doing this, um, starting in 1790. And it it was it's the responsibility of what used to be called the household head, and now is called the you know sort of person one um, to take it away from sort of more authoritarian notions of headship. Um, but so that person has to report how many people there are in their household. Um, the, uh, you know, the, the issue is, is that as we've done it over a couple hundred years, people, the Bureau and uh, outside experts have recognized that also people misreport. So they put in place lots of um, efforts to both conduct what we now know, what we now call sample surveys to sort of, to, 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 um, take a, uh, another survey at the same time to, and match them um, on the one hand, and also to use other sources of information such as, um, you know, the records of um, the, from the IRS or from the Social Security Administration to see if the, if the numbers are coming out, you know, similarly. Why would um, people misreport so- you know. Yeah, so that's what the and so that that gets you really into the weeds about the technical capacities of it, and that's what Sorkin was talking about at the time when there was a big controversy about um, which what the best method was to do this. Why would people misreport? Excuse me. Why would people misreport? It's oh, let me give you a good um, and one of the there's a bunch of classic cases that illustrate this. Um, there are something called residence rules. Now, again, because we use it for apportionment, we're allocating representation on where someone is. So a, uh, a family, mom and dad, have a, a son or a daughter in college, right? And the, and the college student is, you know, the, you know, his or her bedroom is still upstairs, right? right? So mom and dad still think that, you know, report that they're living at home, right? Uh. The student however, also is living in either an apartment or a dormitory, and um, guess what? They get yep. counted twice. Yep. Okay, so that's one. The other is um, the question of whether, again, it's often young people you know, um, uh, on this, where your son is sort of, he maintains the bedroom, but really is, you know, living in town, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe comes back to do the laundry on the weekend. Right. <laughs> but, but really five days a week or someplace else. Yep. So 
in that case, mom and dad don't listen, but yeah. nobody else does either. Yeah, I see. So those are the so those are the kinds of issues that the Census Bureau has to um, figure out how to do um, how to, um, to to capture those things. I mean, the, the classic case. I'll give you this: the classic case when they discovered the problem was re- how, how how big it was was in 1940 when um, um, Congress mandated a draft because World War II was on the horizon, and the, they you know the Selective Service System asked. Congress how many men to estimate so they could print draft forms, and it turned out 13 million, you know, some huge number of men reported for the draft who hadn't been counted in the census, which oh, really? was being taken at the same time. Huh. Okay, so so why is this important? I mean, you know, we're the League of Women Voters. We mm-hmm. get the part about redistricting, and, you know, we obviously mm-hmm. want the redistricting stuff to be right, but let me ask Richard to weigh in here too about mm-hmm. why should we care that we have an accurate decennial census? Go ahead, Richard. Well, there's there's a number of reasons. Uh, as a researcher, uh, I want the accurate numbers so I can. Um, in housing, for instance, we uh, manage the low income housing tax credit program, and that begins essentially with a needs assessment of sorts, where we look at uh, households rented, households owned. How many uh, uh, we look at the age, and then of course we break up income into uh, a number of ways, ranging from zero to nine thousand to ten thousand dollars, all the way up to over a hundred thousand dollars. And we get a sense in a given community of how many older folks would need a assisted housing, and how many uh, families would. So it's really critical uh, for us to have that data-driven analysis there. Um, it's used, too, as well, uh, to look at opportunity areas. Uh, that's something that's been uh, more frequently discussed in the housing realm, if you will, um, areas where uh, there's transportation, uh, access to a variety of uh, resources, uh, uh, education, et cetera. Um, these are areas where ideally you'd want to put housing, and uh, you know, there's a lot of discussion how historically housing gets into one area, and it... Uh, the area becomes run down. Um, I'm oversimplifying this, but um, now we're talking about moving people over into putting those uh, developments, if you will, into areas where they, they have opportunity. So there, there's, I could go on and on, but... Ways that in which the data is important to policymakers and, um, and program administrators. And, sure. you know, the League of Women Voters looks at the voting age population data compared to voting eligible population mm-hmm. and um, voter turnout. We, we use that data all the time. What would you add, Margot? Um, exactly. <laughs> we, it's the, the you know the decennial census is sort of the the base number that we also use to um, es- to develop what are called pop- population estimates and projections um, over the course of the decade. So you know, once every ten years, we get to um, actually. Uh, you know, sort of look at what we're doing from other data sources um, and on a whole variety of things, and and then and sort of recalibrate. It, I guess is the best way to put it. And um, I mean, these were the issues that actually uh, the recognition of these, this, this, you know, of the of these, the importance of these data for things like public policy and funding allocations and program planning and marketing and all of this stuff was what generated the, the concerns uh, that went, that raged for about 30 years in the last 
portion of the 20th century about um, the accuracy of the count. Um, and the Bureau and the Census Bureau and Congress made a lot of changes during that period to try to um, reduce the inaccuracies, which they did. I mean, there's still inaccuracies, but but they're you know it's better than it was, say in 1960 or 1970. Well, let's check in with our listeners, and then I want to mm-hmm. ask you both how worried we should be about the 2020 census. Mm-hmm. There seem to be a lot of storm clouds on the horizon, and some attention be given given to this in the press. So let me take a little break um, for our listeners, and then we'll come back to that question. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum this morning on WERUFM. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is Census 2020, Making Sense of the Census. Our guests are Margot Anderson, Distinguished Professor of History and Urban Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and author of the book The American Census, A Social History. Richard Taylor is also with us. He's the Communications and Research Manager at the Maine State Housing Authority and has been involved with the census here in Maine um, for a long time. So let's let's talk about that question. How worried should we be? John Thompson, the long-term director of the Census Bureau, left a few months ago. Um, lots of talk in the press about the funding being inadequate and con- the congressional budget process being um, unwilling to fund adequately what it would take to conduct a quality census. Um, some people attributing political motivations to some aspects of this discussion. I mean, how concerned should we be at this point? Next year, 2018, would be dress rehearsal time. Are we ready? No. (laughs) (laughs) No, offhand, no. Um, uh, I mean, I'll give you a a kind of an analogy here. Uh, John Thompson, who was um, the the director of the Census Bureau and um, by the way, was slated already to um, roll out of that position at the end of 2017 and, you know, in order to give the new administration time to appoint somebody else. Uh, 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 and he'd been, you know, he'd been with the Census Bureau in one form or another with some breaks since the 1970s. So, I mean, he's a very experienced um, public official. Um, he resigned the same day that James Comey did. No. <laughs> oh. So it got lost in the wash, right? And so one of the... Um, but is, is there a feeling that he resigned in frustration, or was it just his time to go? Um, again, his he had been slated to, to, to leave. Okay. But, the, um, but clearly uh, things were not moving in the direction that he um, thought that they should, um, should go. He didn't necessarily have the confidence of his superiors. Um, and he, so he resigned. Um, Ron John, he has been replaced by a long-term census official, and then named Ron Jarman. Um, so there is, you know, somebody at the helm. But the, the difficulty with not having um, a, a sort of co- continuity and, and budget authority at this point is that it just leads to uncertainty in the planning and run-up. I mean, with various tests of the new um, technologies have already had to be canceled. Um, it's sort of like trying to launch a spaceship um, without ever finding out if it works. What because, are you, you hearing, know, you know, I mean, you only oh, get sorry. one time in April 2000, yep. 2020. So that's the difficulty. And, I, I, you know, on one level, Congress has this problem every decade. So 
um, uh, you know, we we um, and I have been around long enough on this to watch it play out. And sometimes Congress will um, and the public will hop to, and all of a sudden the money will come forth. Other times it doesn't. And then, you know, then there's all kinds of controversies afterwards about whether it, you know, what to do um, when the when problems emerge. Sometimes people say, I told you so. Sometimes people say, ooh, that's a new one. I didn't expect that. Um, but in general, this is the period, you know, the year 7, 8, and certainly 9, when the, when, uh, the professionals, what, use, what often are called the stakeholders, people who watch this all the time, you know, sort of start jumping up and down and saying, look, please pay attention and let's try to get uh, the funding um, out there, um, you know, to make this work. Now, what Congress is saying correctly is you keep you people keep going over budget. And um, we want you to we you need to tell us why and and you need to fix that. So it's not an unreasonable position to take. It's just that there needs to be, um, it's just that the census always faces the problem that that because, as Sorkin was saying, it's not really snazzy um, and high profile, at least until the census year, that it's hard to get uh, the attention of anybody and, and therefore to, to sustain enough of a campaign to get it to get resolution. And okay, it's kind of it's kind yeah. of a hockey stick budget. I mean, it kind of trudges along at a certain low level for the first few years of yes. the decennial, and then it kind of swings up in, in the last couple of years. What are you hearing, Richard, from the state's perspective? Well, pretty much the same thing in talking to other researchers. We're, we're aware that every census, every decennial census, there's a lot of new technology that's going to come into play. Um, we know that... Uh, it um, it's got to be accurate. So there, every the census, uh, decennial census, they're working on accuracy. That's that's critical. So in that sense, it's not new. But we also are very much aware. If you look at the funding and ramping up to a decennial census, right now we're not at anything close to what we were in 2010 or 2000. So we're nervous. We're behind. Yep. We're yeah, and be- behind. I mean, uh, um, uh, you can make that comparison not only to 2010, but to 2000, 1990, and 1980. Yeah. So we're behind historically compared to where we should be at this point in the decade. Significantly behind? or like? Just, oh, yeah. yeah. And especially because there's a really big effort to change the, um, the you know, the delivery system to, um, you know, it's, um, uh, the Internet, right? So this yeah. is... You know, at various points, the, the census has made these kind of quantum leaps in technology. You know, the, um, the, you know, the first mail census in 1970, before that, um, on, not on the administration side, but on the processing side, um, you, know, the, you know, the Census Bureau introduced the first non-defense computer in 1950. Mm-hmm. Um, they introduced mach- what is called machine tabulation, which is basically became IBM in, in 1890. So this is a, um, you know, this is a big technological uh, process as well as a kind of social and political, you know, process. So did they have enough money to test out these new technologies? And, I mean, I, some of the stuff I read indicated that, well, part of the congressional reluctance over funding was, as you said, uh, 
a very reasonable request to get mm-hmm. budget overruns under control. It sounded almost as though some of it was a kind of an anti-technology, anti-data. Um, well, well, the other the other thing that always happens with the census, and this is again a repeated thing, which is like, why is this so hard for you people? Why why can't you just go out and count? Why does it cost so much? And partially because what the census. You know, the, the census and what is called the statistical system, in other words, all the da- the information collection and statistical data collections that the federal government does, right, um, sometimes in conjunction with state and local governments, for example, like, you know, collecting information on fertility and mortality and, you know, and stuff, um, is, is done sort of very quietly, uh, that people pride themselves on being what is called unobtrusive. Right, not getting it in, in interfering with um, people's lives. So the when so they run the problem, which is that when they actually sort of come up to the, for visibility, like now, and sort of say, "Yeah, but we need money to do all this," people say, "What? Right? <laughs> right? Well, you know, I can find this stuff on the internet. What? And and you know, you have to really burrow into the fine print." And six footnotes back to say, oh, that that information was collected by the Bureau of Labor Statistics or the Census Bureau. Oh, that's where that money, that unemployment estimate comes from every month. You see, so it's a they don't toot their own horn about it. And so that's uh, we there was the um, the Census Bureau also runs a a survey called the American Community Survey, which is uh, uh, sort of a, a mini sample census in which runs all the time right you know every month a couple you know people are being surveyed in that in that sense in that effort and it's also expensive and um people get the american community survey in the mail or request to fill it out uh, on the internet and they go what what is this Mm -hmm. and there was a there's been a controversy over the last 10 years over whether you know again well can't the private sector do this should should the government be doing this yep well, so, I wanted to ask yeah. Richard to talk about whether there was sort of an anti-government aspect, like oh, yeah. some of oh, this yeah. sort of <laughs> over-intrusion. Go ahead, Richard. Yes, yes. well, I, I've read and seen people uh, in, in various uh, through various media complain about and even question the constitutionality of the uh, census itself as yes. they, they kind of take a strict construction as perspective, if you will, and they look at the what's said in the Constitution, they said, well, all they're supposed to be doing is just counting people. They shouldn't be going off into, you know, how long or you have been in your house, did you move to this house last year, and from what county, et cetera, et cetera. I'm just saying that because I'm in housing, but uh, right. they think it is intrusive and even unconstitutional, but I'm not a constitutional historian, but I am aware that in the past, when this has gotten to high courts, um, they've generally taken a rather broad interpretation mm-hmm. of the word manner, referring to the manner in which Congress will uh, mm-hmm. take the census. So I think I think they understand, too, the importance of it. It just can't be a head count. It's got to be more to drive policy effectively. Yeah. You wanted to comment on that anti-government, anti-data thing well, a little bit more, Margo. Go again, ahead. Again, it's um, uh, the... You don't. Most of us give out information about our, you know, household or something in in the context of sort of some sort of contractual re- relationship. So, you know, I I pay my taxes or I, you know, 
tell my credit card company where I live um, and so forth, or I apply for a mortgage or whatever. When the census comes around, it's like, why? What should, why should I do this? <laughs> and then they have to say, well, Congress, you know, says it's mandatory. And then, again, for most people, they, you know, then it starts the conversation, like, why are we doing this? Why, right. we, you know? And you have to then work people back through the debate about the relationship between um, uh, citizenship and government. Well, you should only be counting citizens. Should we actually count everyone, whether they're, um, you know, in the country legally or not? Yeah. That's always a big controversy. And wasn't that one of the questions that was actually being proposed was about citizenship and legal status? Yeah, and, and we've asked questions about citizenship in the past. Um, you know, by the way, the, the particular questions that that go on the census form or on what now would be the American Community Survey have changed dramatically over the past couple hundred years. I mean, we used to ask people to report their personal wealth. Right, mm-hmm. and their real, you know, and their real estate holdings on the census. That we only did that for a short period of time in the 19th century because people were like, "No, nah, we're not doing that." We never even asked anybody an income question until 1940. Mm-hmm. Right? So the questions change, and the, um, you know, with the the interest in public policy. Right, let me give you an example from another um, country. Um, in China, for example, because of their one-child policy. Um, asking a woman how many children she's born is incredibly controversial. Right. Right? Because it has direct political implications. That would be, you know, as somebody would say, a nothing burger in this country. Yeah. I think another good example, and correct me if I'm wrong, Margo, yeah. didn't they start asking about uh, health insurance in the 2010 decennial census, or was that 2000? That's a new uh, question. Actually, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I would have to go back... Um, the the finer questions on um, employment status and health insurance and disability have have been much more you know um, recent. But I mean the citizenship questions go back um, at least to the late nineteenth century. I mean we used to ask people um, you know the nativity of their parents. We asked them how many you know uh, whether whether they had taken out first papers. Um, you know all sorts of stuff like this stopped in about 1950 because there wasn't a big immigration stream um, in the country anymore. It wasn't terribly controversial. So they took it off, right? Now it's, we've got big immigrant immigration discussions going on, so this discussion about putting it back. The fear now is that because the immigration debates are so controversial that it will, what is called, suppress participation. Right. People will look at, you know, will say, oh, look, that data is going to go directly to the government, I, you right. know, and I'm not answering. Yeah. And, that, and, that, it, and then it, it triggers the, the complications of the quality of the data overall. Again, yep. At this point, I'd like to invite listeners to join our conversation. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this morning are Margot Anderson, Distinguished Professor of History and Urban Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, and Richard Taylor, Communications and Research Manager at the Maine State Housing Authority. Our topic today is Census 2020, Making Sense of the Census. If you have a question or comment, you can join our conversation now by calling toll-free 866-625-9378 
or 469-0500 if you're calling locally. We have only one listener line open, so be patient if you get a busy signal. If you do get through, please take your answer off the air so that others can also participate. And don't wait till the last minute. Get your call in early. We look forward to hearing from you. Um, I what, what was the fellow's name? Was it Grove? Was it Richard Grove? I, Robert Grove. Robert Grove. I heard him um, interviewed on NPR, and he was talking a little bit about the changing technology and moving towards online mm-hmm. um, response forms and how that has the potential to underrepresent um, poor and transient communities who are not in an online, especially in Maine. We don't even have broadband in some places. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, so... Uh, you know, talk a little bit about the, the changing technology and um, how that evolution has the chance to create some distortions if it's not backed up correctly. I mean, I think I think the best way to talk about that is that the Census Bureau understands that there are some people that are what easy to count, others that are called what are called hard to count, right? And so, what they want to do is use the technology to get the easy-to-count people and save money so that they can devote um, their resources to um, figuring out how they most efficiently get to those hard-to-count areas. You know, if they know, and that's why um, the testing is so important, right? You know, if they can go into the wilds of rural Maine and, in fact, find that the broadband works and that people do um you know, we can't. They can get sixty, seventy percent. Well, then, that's good. That means that then they only need to send out live enumerators to walk around for the other thirty percent, mm-hmm. right? Or, and this is the other hot new thing that they're experimenting with is um, is is partnering with other um, data um, um, records in the federal government. By the way, Canada is doing this um, a lot. And Canada is in some ways ahead of us on this thing. So, the, so instead, so they're sort of saying, "Well, look, we'll try to get you. We have an address, and we think we have enough information that we could go into the um, Medicare records to get the rest of what we need." Right now, that, in other words, that's called, that is called using administrative records, and um, what they've. The Census Bureau has used administrative records for sort of um, estimated the quality of the count, but they've never actually used it to, to for the, you know, for the actual to supplement the actual data. Yeah. Yeah. So that the Canada now does right, um, and um, and so this is this is the these are the you know this is what um, the technical folks and experts who are doing trying to figure out you know both how to save money um, and how to do it um, more accurately, right? Um, the problem is, is that, you know, for example, we do we need information on race and ethnicity for, um, you know, voting rights enforcement and um, uh, civil rights and so forth. You know, those are laws on the books. You know, we don't report a race and ethnic answer on an IRS form. Right. Right? So that data source doesn't help you with that piece of information. Well, and so I want—I mean, I want to ask you that as long as we sort of mm-hmm. drift into this area, whether there is a partisan or a, a voter suppression or redistricting dimension to oh, yeah, some big of this. Time. But there always has been. 
Well, talk a little bit about that. Help okay. our listeners understand where that comes from. Okay. Um, after you do the count, right, and do the what is called the reapportionment, in other words, you take seats in Congress away from State A and give them to State B, right? Um, I'll use the congressional thing, but the same pattern happens at the state and local level. So Texas is slated to be the big winner from from the 2020 census. So three, and, and is, is, is slated to to get three new congressional seats, okay? Where, you know, according to current estimates, three other states have to give those up, right? Um, after, that's one process. The second process is that, okay, now within the area, within the state of Texas or Illinois or Ohio or Maine or New York or whatever, the state legislators have to sit down and actually draw physical districts about where those legislators go. Now, we, we make a, a requirement, again, the courts have mandated what is something called one person, one vote. So we're, the districts have to be the same size as best we can do it, right? In other words, the actual geography of the district. But, the, but, it's, real, but it's very easy to manipulate the, the shape of the district, which is you know, often called gerrymandering. Yeah, we get that. Yeah. yeah. In order to benefit one party or one political position rather than another. But so how does how does shorting the census, I mean, how does having not the best quality census outcome have the potential to advantage one side or the other in this debate? Well, I mean, on the most obvious level, if, if you miss 5% of uh, the, you know, of, or, you know, 5 to 10% of, say, a minority population, you know they're they're going to have five percent. They have proportionately five to ten percent of less representation than they deserve for a decade. Yeah, I mean it's you know that's that's and that was what fueled the uh, what were called the undercount controversies for um, a good you know twenty or thirty years. It's like wait a second, um, and it of course it carries over into the funding allocations and uh, as well. So it means that, you know, your local neighborhood gets 10% less funding than it deserves. Richard, for, you know, how much funding overall is at stake? I mean, do you have a sense for the federal allocation? Yeah, well, I was looking at a 2009 GAO study, and the estimate there was, I think they were talking 84%. Um, at Something around $400 billion was mm-hmm. at stake in a, a variety of programs ranging yeah. from Medicaid to... Uh, uh, Section 8 housing uh, and more. Well, the allocation of which yes. is dependent on having good quality census yep. data. Yep. And, and so if the under if the un, the undercount um, misses a lot of, let's say, poor and disadvantaged people, that just exacerbates that problem because they just get that much less again. Yep. TANF is uh, based on, to some degree, uh, census data. I get it. Mm-hmm. Did you? I heard you nodding uh, over the telephone line. Marco, go ahead and jump in. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly that's exactly right. Right. In other words, the state deserves more funding than it, it gets. <laughs> yeah, because uh, because the census state is not good. And yeah. I mean, like, yeah. do you suspect that in some parts of the current Congress that is actually an active motivation? Well, like to purposely undercount 
It's an indirect one, um, uh, and it's complicated because it, uh, often the, the the actual member of Congress is um, doesn't mean that the money money should come out of my district, <laughs> right. right? Right. But it's a more general sense that the government, you know, that we shouldn't be doing any of this at all, and so it gets fought out over census funding. Well, maybe if we just squeeze this, you know, we'll stop doing it. Yeah. Um, rather than and and. Um, you know, the Congress has had myriad opportunities to stop writing funding formulas, um, and they don't because it, it turns, you know, this has been a mechanism used to, to allocate funding um, among the levels of government and, um, you know, across the population for, you know, over a century, century and a half. Margo, I heard you speak a moment ago about a 20-year undercount controversy, and mm-hmm. I think probably we, we want to know what that was. Well, okay. When, by the, the, there was a period, um, again, the, the, the improvement in our capacity to actually measure the population, in other words, the technical improvements that, that have come with statistics and development of the field of statistics and modern um, data analysis, allowed by the 1960s um, a lot of you know the the stakeholders um, you know the state and local governments and private sector and so forth to realize that they had that there were inaccuracies in the census that they could um, um, fix so for example you know people you know inside insiders knew about this case from the 1940 census with the draft estimates they just never did anything about it for 25 years. Yeah. But in the 1960s, um, along with the civil rights movement and with the um, decisions at the Supreme Court to uh, mandate what is called one person, one vote, in other words, that congressional districts and state legislative districts should be the same size right, uh, across an, a, a, the state, um, other people said, wait, wait, well, why don't we should fix the census, too? That opened up the question of, oh, that's going to be hard. How do we do it? They could estimate at the national level at that point where, what the sort of pat, the differential patterns were between urban and rural and between um, wealthy areas and, not, and poor areas and by race and ethnicity. But they couldn't figure out how to make, to say, well, you know, town A really gets you know, 150 more people, and town B gets 25 more people, right? That was the problem. Yeah. So they spent, um, you know, and there was a controversy over whether it was worth doing in the first place. Um, lots of states and local governments sued the, the Commerce Department and the federal government to make sure that they did the research and got it going. So there were a, a slew of lawsuits that went up through the Supreme Court from in the 18, 1980s and 90s. What they finally did was, um, as often in American government, is came up with sort of a compromise that said, "Look, um, try to estimate the it, and if if it, if this um, if this works um, after the 2000 census, we'll we'll create what is called an adjusted census. Uh, in other words, not the count that came off the house household count, but we'll fix it." Um, if you remember, this 2000 election um, you know, took place at the same time, and the and the Clinton administration turned into the Bush administration, and the Bush administration, the Republicans were much less enthusiastic about this, although you know the courts had supported it, 
and the in the hot air button area of right after um, the 2000 election, there were, it also turned out that there were technical issues in the um, in the adjustment process. So it, it essentially they it um, the the incoming Bush administration said, no, 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 never mind. We can't, we we haven't worked out the technology on this. And um, you know, six months later, the the 9/11 attacks took place. <laughs> um, we went to war in Iraq. The whole thing gets swept off the political um, agenda for, um, you know, ever, frankly, ever since. And, other, and Americans moved on to other things. The Census Bureau continues to provide um, estimates of, uh, of how accurate the census is, and they continue quietly to try to make, to get it better. But the, um, but the political energies that was fueling the lawsuits and the kind of, you know, has basically died down mm-hmm. um, in the last 15 years. Hmm. So so we know it's there. Um, and I think the, the fear for 2020 is that if we don't invest in the preparations, we'll be right back where we were in the 80s and 90s. Yep. Now hold that, that thought, Richard. I'm just going to do a station break, and I, mm-hmm. I know you've got a comment to make, so just hang on to that thought. We'll be right back. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther, the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this morning are Margot Anderson, Distinguished Professor of History and Urban Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, and Richard Taylor, Communications and Research Manager at the Maine State Housing Authority. We're talking about Census 2020, making sense of the census. If you have a question or comment, you can join our conversation now by calling toll-free 866-625-9378 or 469-0500 if you're calling locally. Now to you, Richard. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I think um, in a democracy in general, where politics politics is kind of a method for distributing limited resources, the census is inevitably going to get looked at very closely because it's so inherent. Uh, it's used for that distribution. Say that again. I mean, that was really good. The method for distributing. Yeah, another historian. I I wish I could quote directly. Uh, I can't. Uh, I'll paraphrase. In, in a democracy, anyways, politics is the method used for the distribution of limited resources, and okay. the census is critical to that distribution. So inevitably, politics is going to get um, brought into the discussion. Yep. Mm-hmm. I mean. So let's, in the last few minutes um, that remain to us on the show, talk about why ordinary people, and especially people in Maine, should care whether we have a good census or not. I mean, what I'm hearing you both talk about is fairness, apportionment, the electoral system, the distribution of resources, um, the demographics of inequality, all of these things factor into it. But let me not put words in your mouth. Richard, what will you say? Why should Maine people care whether we have an accurate census or not? Uh, yeah, I think you just hit the, the main points I would have made. Um, I, I also think, um, though, that uh, the, we want our government to be honest to begin with and our politicians to be honest with, and we want fairness, essentially. Uh, uh, we therefore would want the census and these counts to be accurate uh, in the variety of ways uh, the data is taken in. Um, it, it's critical. I, I... What would you say, Margo? Basically, um, you know, the same thing, which is that this is a, 
you know, in the grand scale of things, this is a um, a uh, a very small um, piece of um, of a person's life. I mean, one of the things I always point out is that I ask people when we talk about this, where were you on April first, twenty ten, or April first, two thousand? And you know, people don't remember, right? So it's this is the part of the unobtrusiveness of it. Um, we do remember where we were on September eleventh, two thousand one. Um, but the um, but the the fact is is that um, uh, if you ride around the United States, um, almost every as you come into any municipality or local area, um, the first thing you see is you know the name of the town and, and population. population yeah. Right, right. Um, you see, uh, uh, right. Um, um, we. Uh, we we think numerically uh, about growth. We're very used to the fact of. I mean, most you know, most Americans um, will know in some vague sense, not in actual numbers, that we, we used to be a much smaller country than, than we, we are, are now, and right? And we're a big country now, um, and so that there's a kind of um, uh, um, uh, the. A, a colleague of mine wrote a wonderful book on this, the, the development of this kind of thinking called where Americans are a calculating people. Yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> hey, in Mar- other words, we, <laughs> we think in terms of numbers, and part of it is because this was the solution to the problems of the revolutionary era and the evolutions ever since. In other words, we, you know, and it, it worked. Yeah. Right? Hey, so, Margaret, I'm going to interrupt yeah. you for just a second because we do have a caller. Uh, Lindy from Southwest Harbor, go ahead. You're on the air. Yes. Good morning. It's very, very, very interesting uh, dialogue going on. Well, my question is, how does the census ta- uh, taking affect this horrific process that the Republicans have seemed to master gerrymandering? Yeah. Good question. Oh, okay. So uh, I'm listening. Thank you so much. Thank for you. That. You started Please. to talk about that, Margo. Go ahead. Finish yeah, it up. The gerrymandering. Gerrymandering is a is a hot new issue once for the first you know for the first time in quite a while from my perspective. In other words, and there's a big case actually from my home state of Wisconsin before the Supreme Court um, next month. So everybody yeah. should pay attention to watch that. Um, the the uh, the the interesting thing about why we're talking about gerrymandering now, in other words, the manip- political manipulation of the drawing of districts uh, by fiddling with the geography in such a way that either one party or one race or one group gets, you know, is, is, is advantaged over another, um, is uh, partially a function of the fact that we've developed really good computer technology called, uh, based on what is called geographic information systems in the last 20 or 30 years. Americans have always wanted to gerrymander. I mean, the, the term comes from, you know, is, is, it comes from 1812, um, when Elbridge Gerry, then the governor of Massachusetts, manipulated a district into a shape that looked like a salamander, and the local media called it a gerrymander. That's where we get the term from. So it's a really old, you know, method. Americans are very good at manipulating their political system. But what what has, uh, but for a long time, it was simply too hard to do this, right? What we now can do is a much better job of uh, with computers, and so what is before the courts, and has you know has gone through the district courts and the appellate courts uh, here in the Midwest, is a new challenge to that process. Saying no, 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 this is um, 
we have to put some constraints on this kind of manipulation. And the League of Women Voters of Wisconsin wrote an amicus brief in that Wisconsin case that's going to the Supreme Court next month, and um, we've been active working on redistricting reform for a long time. Yes, Um, right. But so is census data what's underlying that? Okay. Right, and it's, um, but the, you know, the Census Bureau is not an administrative agency. In other words, it's, it's it's a statistical agency, so it collects the data, and it hands them over, yeah. right? It, you know, if you read the census statute, um, the, the, you know, the Commerce Secretary and the Census Director have to report the results of the decennial census by December 31st of the year of the census, yeah. and they have to report the what is called the small area data, in other words, the, the lower level geography, you know, how many are in this town and this place and that place, by April 1st of the year after the census. And then the Census Bureau... Is, backs is out in of some it. ways done. Yep. And it, it shifts to um, state legislatures. We, ha- we have one more caller on the mm-hmm. line, Anonymous. Um, go ahead for, with your question or comment. We're running out of time, though, so keep it. Hi. Uh, yeah, thanks for the program. Sorry I'm calling in so no late. Problem. I've worked for the census for 15 years. Oh. And uh, I just wanted to take this opportunity it's very self, in a very self-serving way to um, just inform people that we don't just count people. Um, and people don't know that. And I've had to explain it over and over again. The census collects so much data through yeah. the American Community Survey, which is a general demographic survey, through the current population survey, which is a labor survey, the health survey, there's a crime survey, there's a fish hunt survey. I could go on and on. I've been told to my face, no, you're wrong. The census is just supposed to count people. And I don't know that people don't know how your government gathers data in this way. Uh, Actually, it's by asking people questions. That's how they gather data. Um, It doesn't just appear magically. Anyway, I just wanted to put that out there. Thank you. (laughs) No, appreciate it. And, you know, if we want evidence-based policy, we need data. What do you say, Richard? I I agree 100%. (laughs) Elaborate. Yeah. Go it, ahead. It, well, I, you know, I was going to go back a minute to how this helps the ordinary citizen um, and GIS that Margo just mentioned, geographic information systems. Businesses are increasingly becoming reliant on census data. Where you want to put your business, you want to understand that demography, how many workers can I get. And if uh, a certain age group is considered more technological savvy, you want you want that age there. Um, where are people coming from? Uh all of this is critical to business decision making today. Mm-hmm. I, uh, yes. I was at a recent meeting with the uh, of ACS data users, and that speaker was uh, an economist from Zillow. Mm-hmm. So a lot of organizations are using data beyond just the sense of, uh, citizens, uh, ordinary citizens, as you say, in the demographic and yeah. policy making process. It's huge. Yeah. yeah. You want to comment on that, Margo? No, the richness I think of that's the data? exactly right. I mean, the the this what is called the stakeholder community is um is is often um uh business organizations and corporations as and as well as um you know state and local governments and activist you know policy groups and so forth well so um we're we're getting short on time but i always want to ask this question at the end of the show if somebody had been listening and was motivated by this conversation to try to take some action, what role can citizens play in encouraging um, an accurate census? Well, you hit the word there that I always think of is encourage people 
to complete a survey, whether they get it by mail, whether they're contacted on the phone, whether they can go on the Internet now, as, as was mentioned, and, and fill one out um, and do it thoroughly and honestly and completely because it, it is going to help all of us in the long run. Margo, any advice yeah, and for us? I citizens? agree. And, and one thing we haven't talked about today is that the Bureau has a, ver- has a good record on keeping that information, what is called confidential. confidential. I mean, it doesn't go, um, it doesn't go into other um, uh, government activities. So, you know, the IRS can't get your census form, for example. Um, and, um, and it means also taking, you know, um, finding out what your local congressman or woman or senator um, or state legislator um, thinks about this and giving them a heads up and say, hey, pay attention to this. Yeah. Right? So contact your congressional delegation and mm-hmm. let them know mm-hmm. that you think the budget should be there to do a good mm-hmm. job. Yeah, excellent. We're um, nearly out of time. I want to give you each just a few seconds to offer any parting thoughts on the topic today. Margo, go ahead first. Mostly stay tuned. Yeah. <laughs> In other words, this is going to get more um, uh, uh, attention and importance for uh, both the media and the data users and um, the respondents to government surveys in the next year or two. And so, um, this, you know, this is, uh, uh, I see this as a kind of, you know, this is the busy period for the next two or three years. It's going to get hot. Richard? I would just say that... Um you know, as we were talking about funding issues, technology is always changing, and it's a mm-hmm. big challenge for every s- census. Um, on the flip side, and more positive note is that um, this technology, use of social media, is is a big deal down there now because they're going to be able to use this in promoting and marketing the census to a much wider range of people. So hopefully they'll be successful. In that I regard. hope so, too. Just don't forget those who aren't online. Oh, gosh. Right. <laughs> All right, now we are out of time. Uh, Thank you to our guests this morning. Margo Anderson, thank you for joining us. Distinguished Professor of History and Urban Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. And Richard Taylor, thanks for coming into the studio today. Communications and Research Manager at the Maine State Housing Authority. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Thank you to Amy Brown, our engineer today at WERU, and thank you to our listeners. Our website is lwvme.org for more information about this topic or to learn about other shows in this series. You can email us at downeast at lwvme.org. We'll see you here next month when our topic will be direct versus representative democracy. Is populism the answer? Um, Thanks very much. We'll see you next month. For WERU comes from our listeners and from the Maine Organic Farmers 